Hey, I'm David Crabtree, lead pastor at Calvary Church. Welcome to our podcast. I hope you'll find something every week that inspires you to dig deeply into God's Word and reach for the unmet potentials that lie within you. You can subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen and never miss an update. Hope you enjoy the message. Well, good evening, Calvary. It's great to be live tonight here from the sanctuary. Going to take a few moments and enjoy one more Bible study together, although together is kind of a relative term. I'm seated here in a completely empty sanctuary and you're wherever you are, but we're tuning in together. COVID's kind of rewritten all of the rules. But even in this, even in this, I rejoice. I believe God holds us in the palm of his hand and that his plans are being worked out in our lives, even in the most difficult of circumstances, the strangest, the strangest experiences in life. It has been a joy over these last 35 years to teach and preach the word of God. I've loved the teaching on Wednesday nights and the connection that we've had together as we've walked through the word. And tonight I wanna talk to you about conversion. Speak on the subject of conversion from Philippians chapter three, verses seven through 16. And you might wanna find your way there. We'll be looking at those passages in a moment. A prince was born in England just a few years ago and there were 19 million Facebook engagements that took place over this subject of the little prince in a single day, 19 million. This boy was obviously born into a life of great privilege. He will not want for any material resource or educational opportunity in life. He's famous simply because he is George Alexander Louis, his royal highness, Prince George of Cambridge. He's third in line for the throne of England. And that's, well, that's quite a pedigree. Paul had a pedigree also. It wasn't a royal one, but a privileged upbringing of sorts. Just listen to him. And I read from Philippians, the third chapter, first verses five and six circumcised of the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul was raised for greatness. He was chosen for the best schools. He studied under Gamaliel. He was destined for lofty heights. He was rising up to achieve all that his mentors and his masters had seen in him from his earliest years. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He had a track to run on. There was a clearly designed plan for his life. He was climbing. He was achieving. He was excelling. He was promoted in line for higher and higher office, enjoying the respect of his fellows and the fear of his enemies. He was making the home folks proud. He was answering his own conscience. He was thinking, always thinking that he was so right, certain, absolutely certain that he was doing God's work. He considered himself the guardian of the purity of the faith of Israel. There's no indication that Paul was anything but pleased with his role in life. And then on the Damascus road, Paul met Jesus. And everything changed. Stay with me for a moment. Paul met Jesus. Everything changed. 
Here's my great concern. We lead people to a confession of faith and nothing changes. Churches are increasingly populated with unconverted people, no change people, religious observers. Because they haven't met Jesus, their lives are essentially the same as they were before. They've simply joined the church, or more accurately, they have have simply joined the church. The discovery of Jesus changed everything for Paul. We often hear testimonies that go like this. Well, I had it all, but I wasn't happy. I couldn't make sense of life. I was disappointed or I was suicidal. Then I met Jesus and he rescued me, all of which would cause one to shout hallelujah. But Paul wasn't disappointed with his life. He wasn't disillusioned in the job. He wasn't discontent or lethargic in his practice of the faith. Paul wasn't looking for something better. Paul's life was cooking. Paul was riding high. Paul was making it. Paul wasn't saved from the valley of despondency. He was rescued from the pinnacle of success. From a happy, fulfilled, successful, meaningful by all accounts, meaningful life. Paul met Jesus and everything he was so satisfied with in one moment was dashed. It was wrecked. I hear people all the time saying, Jesus came into my life and I was saved. How about Jesus came into my life and I was wrecked? Paul's crisis of faith wasn't about the upheaval of his life. It was all about the revelation of Jesus and who he was and what that meant in light of the way he had been living. He met Jesus and everything had to be reordered, reassessed, redefined. You see, Christianity is not a new or a next philosophy. It's, it's not a new paradigm. It's not a new attitude. It's a new relationship that births a new creation. We call it the new birth. And that changes everything. Nothing less than a personal encounter with the living Christ can so change a life. Paul would later write, theology bridging the Old Testament and the New Testament but at his conversion he hadn't given a thought not a thought to what we know as New Testament theology he met Jesus and his theological framework was no longer sustainable everything had to be reconsidered you see conversion is not a theological construction it's a living encounter and that encounter changed Paul and radically altered the entire course of his life Has an encounter with Jesus Christ changed you? Radically. Wrecked you. Made you into a different person? Have you been converted? I fear we've often settled for just rearranging the deck chairs on a sinking ship. We're kind of experts at remodeling the showroom windows. Oh, we got 10 principles or five steps to success or three essentials to a new you. We've got that stuff for everything. And none of it works. None of it works. Transformation comes out of that relationship with Christ where his presence means we view life through a different grid altogether. 
Have we preachers become cosmeticians? Offering free makeovers, I wonder. Rather than being oracles of God, that is. Are we filling our churches with the unconverted? People who know much about Jesus but falter when they're asked if they really know him. To the Philippians, Paul writes, going on in verse 7 in the third chapter, Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining toward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. We live in the gravitational pull of three competing realms. Paul addressed them all. The past, the present, and the future. Jesus radically alters all three dimensions and its pull or its effect in us. We have to talk about the past. Paul says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them all rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. One thing I do, forgetting, forgetting what lies behind. Paul didn't forget the past as one who had developed amnesia. Take, for example, his incredible understanding of Christ fulfilling the law. Well, Paul had been steeped from his boyhood. He'd been steeped in the law, educated in the law, so knowledgeable concerning the law, a champion of the law. He didn't forget what he had learned, but he no longer served the law. Life was no longer about the law. And that was everything that Paul had lived for. From the day he encountered Jesus on the road to Damascus, it was Jesus. The past no longer had that that central, overwhelming, powerful, gravitational pull on his life. See, the past can be so many things. It's part schoolroom. We should all treat the past as a schoolroom. It can also be a prison house, a wasted place. It can be a well of experience. It can be like an abandoned assembly line. It can carry a dark cloud of failure. It can be a a stepping stone. It can be a stumbling block. It can be embarrassment. It can be encouragement. The past lives on in our habits, in our character, our 
expectations, our limitations, even our pain. The past easily becomes then the justification for the present. Well, it was that way. That's how I was brought up. I'm the product of my past. It's an excuse we have for actions and attitudes, ambitions and limitations. We have, we have empowered the past. We have granted it license to bind us, a license to define us, a license to limit us, and even the license to kill. Where the past is empowered, Christ cannot be enthroned. You cannot live under the lordship of Jesus until you are done done with your past we empower the past when we refuse to forgive the unforgiving soul is nothing more than a prison guard as trapped as the prisoner he he holds captive 24 7 he cannot live he can't soar he can't run he can't create he can't thrive he is a prison guard because somebody did him long somebody did him wrong a long long time ago and he has committed himself to keep that person imprisoned for the offense listen take it from me if i've learned anything in my 35 years of serving as a pastor here now almost 40 in the ministry it's this write it off Write it off. You say, but they were wrong and they're never going to apologize. You have to understand that. They were wrong. You're not going to get the apology that you're looking for. Everything's not going to come back up roses. Some opportunities aren't going to come around again. So write it off. You say, but it hurts me and it limits me and it wounded me and it's ruined me. Nothing will change the past. Write it off. You see, Paul's past mattered. It mattered above all things until Jesus and suddenly his life found a new center. Christ is not just the Christ of the past. He has been there walking with us, wooing us, calling us, leading us. But he is the, he is the Christ of the present, the Christ of the now. Paul's past mattered until he met Jesus and then brand new center. It was all about The law, it was all about right and wrong. And then suddenly, it was only about Jesus. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ, Paul says. We empower the past when we refuse to be forgiven. Jesus famously said to the woman taken in adultery, she was as guilty as sin, nothing but a dirty little affair here. Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I wonder if she struggled with such a simple answer. I know I do. I know God's grace is offered to me, but I cannot tell you how often I find myself striving somehow to earn forgiveness, to justify. And there's nothing to be justified. He's done all of that. We need forgiveness. And yet we struggle so when forgiveness is given. I'm off the hook for the commission of my sins of of commission and omission. He who the son sets free is free indeed. We need to come to grips with grace. The only remedy for our sin. A Vietnam veteran haunted by the atrocities of war was unable. I'm sorry, was able to go back a few years later 
to visit the land that had taken so much from him. And he walked the overgrown trail where, quite alone, many years before he killed an enemy soldier, and he had suffered the effects of that one moment for decades. There on the trail, he left a letter. I read it for you. Dear sir, for 22 years now, I've carried your picture in my wallet. I was only 18 years old that day when we faced one another on the trail at Chu Lai, Vietnam. Why you didn't take my life, I'll never know. You stared at me for so long, armed with your AK-47, and yet you didn't fire. Forgive me for taking your life. I was reacting just the way I was trained to kill the VC. So many times over the years, I've stared at the picture of you and your daughter. Each time my heart and guts burn with the pain of guilt, I have two daughters myself now. I perceive you as a brave soldier defending his homeland above all else. I can now respect the importance that life held for you. I suppose that's why I'm able to be here today. It's time for me to continue the life process and release my pain and my guilt. Forgive me, sir. It's time to release my pain and my guilt. Every time I read that letter, I grieve over that soldier trying to find forgiveness where it cannot be found. He stands under a jungle canopy at the foot of the tree where he silently witnessed the kill shot and he looks for the release we can only know at the foot of the cross. That soldier is in many ways more enlightened than many who darken our doors. He knows he must be forgiven. He knows he needs it. He knows he's got to design some way to settle this, to bury this, to turn his back. Forgive me, sir, he says. But that VC soldier cannot forgive him. But you can forgive him, the one who's wronged you. You and I can offer that wonderful gift of grace which reflects the gift of mercy and grace that Christ has extended to us. You and I can receive even a more perfect grace, a covering grace, amazing grace, grace that saves us from our past. It's time. It's time for somebody tonight to move forward. You can't stand on the trail of your atrocity any longer. The ground of your guilt needs to be abandoned. I grew up singing in the church, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross. Now I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. Last Sunday, those who could gather in this place, I was over here on the left, and we sang as loud as we could, gone, gone, all my sins are dead and gone, and I sing hallelujah. Only Jesus can free us from the past. And I'm so grateful tonight that my sins are gone. But if I read Paul correctly, it's not only the sin of my past that is laid to rest. It isn't just cleansing. Okay, my sins are dealt with. It's conversion. It isn't just dying to sin. It's now living for Christ. I took my Ford through the car wash not long ago. I drove up, I paid a man, I put the car in neutral. And when I was kind of pushed out on the other side of the car wash, the dirt and all the blemishes were gone. But this is not an accurate picture of salvation. 
Here's how it should look. I drive my Ford into the car wash. I pay the man. I put the car in neutral. And when I'm pushed out the other side, I am clean. Not only that, I am no longer a Ford. Now I'm a Lexus. You understand that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness, but that cleansing also transforms us until it can no longer be said we are the same. What affects this transformation? It's the living encounter with Jesus Christ. You see, it's not just about getting your, getting your life cleaned up. It's about a new life. Didn't Jesus say to Nicodemus, you must be born again? Didn't Paul say, if any man be in Christ Jesus, he is a new creature? Or what about, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. From the point of his introduction to Jesus on the Damascus road, Paul found a new center. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Are we to believe here that Paul was simply speaking of himself? Wasn't he appealing to his churches to be imitators of him? Can we believe that Paul's passion for Christ, his pursuit of Jesus, it's simply biographical, autobiographical in the scripture? Would we believe for a moment that it is not Paul pleading for us to share the same passion after Jesus? Can we be churched and yet unconverted? Can we be indoctrinated and yet unchanged. Can we truly be Christian apart from transformation? Can the past be our master still? The most powerful prayer that I ever prayed, I prayed at the age of 21. I'm sorry, <laughs> 17. Most powerful prayer I prayed at 17. Lord, I prayed, I'm miserable. If you're real, please come into my life, don't miss this, and change me. Change me. I knew at 17 that unless I experienced transformation, nothing of eternal consequence had taken place within. And I wonder if there's someone here this evening who, re who really needs to pray that same kind of prayer. Lord, I've been to church and I've heard your word and I can sing the songs and I even know some of the scriptures memorized. But I can't say that encountering you, my life has been changed. Until that happens, you're missing it. Desperately, desperately missing it. And so, as I come to the close of 35 years here at Calvary and an awful lot of Bible studies together. I just couldn't quit tonight without issuing just one more time, one simple challenge. Make 
Jesus, Lord of your life. Invite him in. Let him have rule and reign in your life. Ask him certainly to wash away your sins, and he will. But don't stop there. Give him the keys to your life. Let him lead you and guide you into a whole new day. I pray it will be soul for you. Father, I ask in the name of Jesus that you would speak to people who struggle, who really struggle for the lack of transformational power in their lives while seeing themselves as religious, it's hard for them to see themselves as truly converted. Following after you is a grudging and a drudging kind of uh, following a path that's difficult and hard rather than walking in step with the one that you know loves you the best. I thank you, Lord, that when we come before you and lay down our lives, surrendering our hearts to you, you, know it only, you not only come in and renovate, you come in and you make us new. And I pray the new birth over someone tonight. I pray, O oh Lord, your grace to lead them in a whole new path, a new destiny, a far greater day than they ever could imagine. I pray that over this church also. And to that end, we give you glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's walk faithfully with the Lord until that day he calls me home.